Amen. Well, I hope by now you've got a handout and something to write with. And we're going to talk a little bit tonight about how we grow. We're going to get some clarity. Uh, you know, I just want you to begin tonight by just thinking for a moment about how, uh, I tell you, we are a fickle people. And so much of our energy and our time in the church especially is given to uh, just reorienting or staying on point with the gospel. What I mean by that is that it's a continual battle to stay focused on what we need to focus on uh, and not drift. And if we take our eyes off, if we uh, you know, begin to coast for any amount of time, we're going to drift off center. Now, some of us are going to drift towards legalism, and some of us are going to drift towards liberalism. But we're going to drift. And the beautiful thing about the Scripture is that it always brings us back center. It always reminds us that uh, God's ways are not our ways and His thoughts are not our thoughts and that He has a very specific plan and purpose and way in which He does things. And we have to be continually reminded of that or else we will begin to accustom God to our way of thinking. And... uh, Surely, as we talk through some of these things tonight, that will come to the forefront of your mind. So let's pray and ask God to help us, and then we'll study together. Father, we want to thank you. Thank you for you, Lord. Thank you that you are, God, all we want and all we need. And Lord, we just come tonight because we want to worship you. We want to obey you. We want to honor you and glorify you, Lord. And so we are here on this Sunday evening to to learn something, to grow, to be together as a people, Lord, that you might spur us on to sanctification in this process as we are sitting here listening and thinking, Lord. So we thank you for all that you have before us, Lord. And God, I just want to thank you tonight that we can have as much of you as we want. The question is, How much of you do we want? So, Lord, thank you for being a fountain of living water that flows freely and that we can drink of as much and as long and as often as we desire. And you will always meet us and fill us to overflowing. And so we want to thank you for that. So give us ears to hear tonight. Hearts to receive, we pray. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we go with this game again. So they'll get this fixed in just five seconds, and then we'll be able to go forward. So your first uh, blank is, what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus in the complex world in which we now live? In the book of Jeremiah, there's a scripture that says, My people have committed two evils. They have dug for themselves broken cisterns. They've got out their shovels and dug these cisterns in the ground to catch water so that they'll have something to drink. The Bible says the first evil is to dig these broken cisterns. The second evil is they've forsaken the fountain of living water. Boy, I tell you, you just think about that for a few minutes. It is so true. It is so true that we will uh, so oftentimes feel so much more confident and comfortable with a shovel in our hand digging a, a cistern in the ground where there's a flowing fountain of living water right there and ignoring that. And we can drink of it as much as we want, as much as we want to. Now, is the gospel just about forgiveness so that we can go to heaven? Well, my goodness, after this morning, you ought to have a little clarity on that, huh? I tell you, you you listen to uh, cultural commentary on the gospel and you'd be utterly confused. I would highly recommend you stick to the Scripture. 
So is it about forgiveness so that we can go to heaven? Is that the whole thing? Or is there something bigger? Not that forgiveness and going to heaven is not great, because it is great. And not that I'm not super grateful for that, because I am. But when we're having a gospel conversation with someone, or when we're thinking about the gospel in our own mind, when we're praying for lost people, how are we contextualizing the gospel in people's lives? And far too often we're thinking in terms of forgiveness and going to heaven And I think God's thinking a whole lot more. Is transformation into Christ's likeness possible in this life? I mean, can you really uh, grow into uh, everything that God would desire for you to grow into? In other words, can you you be sanctified to uh, the highest degree possible? Of course, there's a lot of of uh, factors that tie into that. What age are you when you get saved? Uh, what opportunities do you have? You know, there's, there's people that, that get saved late in life. There's people who uh, live in places where there's uh, no gospel-centered churches or that it's very difficult or so on and so forth. But all those things taken into consideration. I wonder about me and you tonight. I wonder, the the moment you got saved, I wonder what potential you had in sanctification. I wonder how far you could go in your spiritual growth. Now, if it is, then how does it really work? How do we we grow in Christ-likeness? I mean, how does it actually work? Not just, oh, well, you know, God does. I mean, how does it really work? And how can you tell if you're making progress? You know, one of the things I do every January is I, uh, I do two things. I probably should do 20 things, but I, I do two, but I feel like at least I'm doing two. One of them is, is that I sit down at the beginning of every year and I take a spiritual inventory. I sit down and I, uh, I look at my life and I ask myself, now, now how, how have I grown in the last year? Uh, what areas of my life am I deficient in? What, what areas of my life would I like to see growth in, in, in this coming year? I, I think about where I, one year ago, where was I, where I am today, what are the things that God's done. That's why it's so important for you to be journaling or keeping a record of your journey with God so that you can always go back and think through those things. But I think that's important. The other thing I do is I uh, take an inventory of my marriage. I ask myself, how am I doing as a husband? Uh, where, where can I improve? What things can I do to be a better husband and a better father? I, I want to grow every opportunity I can to grow in, in grace and understanding as I Love and lead the people that God's called me to love and lead. So what about you? How do you tell if you're making progress? Do you just kind of, are you just sort of floating down the spiritual lazy river? And every so often, you know, you get out to get some lemonade and then you kind of look around and see where you are. And then you hop back on the tube and float down some more. Or are you intentionally thinking about these things? What role, what is your role in, the, in this growth process? What do you do specifically? If you said tonight, I want to grow in Christ, okay, well then, what do you do? What's God's role in the process? See, I think it's very clear. Everybody's got to know their lane. I'm big on lanes. So I'm going to stay in my lane. I got to know what my lane is. I need to know what God's lane is. And then I need to know what the church's lane is. Everybody's got a role to play. There's probably other roles, but those are the only three that concern our topic tonight. But what, what are they? Or maybe... This morning, you drifted off while I was preaching, and you flipped your 
listening guide over and started reading through the discussion questions. And you got to the, uh, the big long question where I gave you some of the statistics from the Barna study. And you thought to yourself, now how did we get into this mess? And how are we going to get out of it? Man, I tell you, we live in a country where 50% of the American population professes to have prayed a sinner's prayer and received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 50% of those people never dawn the door of a church of any kind. And two-thirds of those people that profess to have prayed a prayer and received Jesus as Lord and Savior live lives that are blatantly and outwardly contrary to what the Bible would say a Christian ought to be doing. Now, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out we got a problem. There's a huge disconnect between what the Scripture says and what we see going on around us. And I mean, it's colossal. So, let me give you some ideas about the disaster. It's the modern gospel, converts versus disciples. It's the new man-centered gospel that's not in the Bible. Jesus never preached it. Paul didn't even know what it was. But boy, we got it going strong today. A couple uh, facts for you. 260 times the Scripture references people who follow Jesus as disciples, learners, pupils, followers. 265 times. It's awfully telling that four times you find the word Christian, and in those four times... They're descriptive terms used by others. So, the gospel Jesus preached as we set out in the first week of this study is a gospel of the kingdom. And it offers the present availability and access to life in God now. Jesus never walked up to anybody and said, hey, how'd you like to go to heaven? He never said that. Everything in the context of what Jesus was doing was about coming into the kingdom now, living a life now in the kingdom, that the kingdom of God is at hand now, that you are following Him now. Yes, it was, the, it was a foregone conclusion that those who followed him would go to heaven but that wasn't the conversation so this conversion gospel what it's done is it's substituted a reduced gospel that focuses solely on forgiveness of sins and assurance of heaven in order to gain appeal now it's a reduced gospel see it's the reason I didn't use the term false gospel although I could have is that what it says is true, it just doesn't tell you all the truth. Now, I spend a whole lot of time, probably, not probably, I'm positive. I spend more time in court than any other pastor around, I can assure you. So every week I'm sitting in a courtroom with a, a foster family or with regards to foster children or something to do with foster kids. So I know a lot about what goes on in courtrooms. And if you are under oath and you swear to truth, tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, if the judge asks you a question and what you say is completely true but you withhold information and don't tell them all the truth, what happens? You lie. That's what happens. You lie. 
You got to tell them everything. You got to answer the question fully and truthfully. And so saying to somebody that the gospel means you're forgiven of your sin and you go to heaven, that's true, but that's far from all the truth. But it's very appealing, isn't it? It's wonderful. Listen, just pray this prayer. Just pray this prayer, and you, you guaranteed you're going to go to heaven. And then they pray the prayer, we, we hug, you're my brother now, I'll see you in heaven, you leave, and no one ever sees them again. And the question I have is, are you going to see them in heaven? Now come on, what do you really think? The conversion-centered approach to the gospel has, for many people, been interpreted as a finish line or an ending point instead of a starting line or a beginning. There's so many problems with conversion-centered evangelism. There's so many problems with all we want to do is get somebody to uh, be able to go to heaven. It short-circuits so much of what the New Testament wants us to know about God and the joy and the wonder of following Him. Most people see themselves as Christians right at the point of conversion. But the call to be a disciple for many is a second-level option. It's often reserved for some more serious Christians. It's sort of like, you know, discipleship is for like when you really get sold out. Uh, I'm so sensitive to this because of, of just my journey and my story. And so that's what makes me so... I'm very vigilant about this. I see this. I notice this. I wonder... I was thinking about this this morning during worship time as we were singing. And, um, you know, I'm wondering, do you see the the... The special things. Are you able to identify the special things that God's doing uh, here? Do you notice the young people that are really on track with the Lord? Can you tell who they are? Or do you just see everybody as people? Because if you do, you're missing some wonderful things. There's some people here, uh, some, some young men and women that have come to faith in the last year. And they're special. By special, I mean they understand discipleship. And so there's they're brand new believers. They're in church every time the doors are open. They're in D groups. They're involved. They're engaged. And they're different from most of the other people. And I can spot them. I can see them singing in the choir. I can see them serving in the preschool department. I I see them. I, I can see them. And when I see him, I smile in my heart. And I, I remember. I remember that, that, that internal momentum when I got saved. Nobody said, nobody pulled me and Lisa aside and said, you know, of course, nobody had to tell her anything. She already knew everything. I was the ignorant one. But nobody ever pulled me aside and said, now, now, Tony, you need to, uh, need to make sure you go to church on Sunday night. In fact, Sunday, if you remember my story, that uh, on the weekends was when I made about 80% of my income. Sunday was the second busiest day of the week for me. And so my business was thriving. And so uh, I, after I got saved, I sat down with my partner and I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm not going to be here anymore on Sunday mornings. I'll be in at lunchtime. And so what would happen was every Sunday he would go down, open up, run the business, and then I'd come in after church, and then he'd go home. 
Well, that worked for a little while, but not very long. So a few months after that, I sat down with him and I said, okay, here's the deal. I'm not coming in on Sundays anymore at all. Now, nobody told me to do that. And I remember him thinking, well, you know, and I said, I don't really, I'm not asking you. I'm just telling you I'm not going to be here on Sundays at all. By that time, I was already teaching Sunday school. I was already in church every Wednesday night. Nobody ever told me anything. I'm teaching Sunday school. I don't know anything, but I'm teaching. It would take me eight, ten hours a week I'd study to teach seventh grade boys Sunday school class. I still have, I would have these notes and notes and notes. It's, it's unbelievable. I had more notes to teach a seventh grade boys Sunday school class times ten than I had to preach a sermon this morning. Times ten. I would cut things out of the, I mean, this is just a, a frame for you. There, I didn't have a word processor and a printer at my house. I would hand write on these things and tape them in, in my, my uh, Bible. I would cut with scissors the pieces out of the curriculum that I was using and tape it in order and then write my notes in between the, the taped in stuff. It would take hours and hours and hours every single week. I see people like that here. They're not normal. They don't think about discipleship as a second-level option. See, Scripture clearly states that entry-level follower of Jesus is a disciple. Did you ever notice that whenever uh, somebody followed Jesus, I'm talking about the instant you met them, Matthew the tax collector, pick any of the disciples. Did it ever strike you that the very minute that they followed Jesus, he referred to them as a disciple. The scripture calls them a disciple. It wasn't like they, they were, uh, you know, a JV disciple, and then, whoo, they got their patch, they got their letter, they made the A-team. It wasn't like they were, you know, on the, the, the junior squad, and then they, they no, they weren't like a, a learner for a while, and then it, instantaneously they're a disciple. Did you ever notice that? Instantly. We don't think like that. Most people I talk to don't think like that. The conversion-centered gospel has no missional appeal. It doesn't propel you beyond yourself. See, here's, what, here's why the, it's like spiritual quicksand. You show me somebody who's uh, been been spoon-fed the conversion-centered gospel, and I'll show you somebody who doesn't do anything. Why would they? They sit around and, and say things like, uh, oh, no, I mean, I hear it. Here's a good one for you. Well, pastor, I don't really understand why you got people running all over the globe doing mission work, and we got people right here in our backyard that need help. Hmm. Boy, you know, that sounds good, humanly speaking, doesn't it? There's only one problem. That's not what Jesus said. See, I don't really care what you think. This is what Jesus said. I'm just obeying what He said. He said, go to the nations. He didn't say anything else. He said, the nations. Right? But it makes sense to them. In other words, they don't see a reason to why stretch themselves. Why? Here's the point. If I'm going to heaven, what do I care if people halfway around the world go to hell? I'm never going to meet them. I don't know them. What difference does it make? Why am I going to sacrifice and give to that? Why am I going to spend my time and invest my time and make myself uncomfortable and do things I don't want to do? I'm going to heaven, so who really cares? Right? Yeah. You see, a conversion-centered understanding of the gospel just makes you a completely self-centered person. So if it's convenient for you, well, then you'll do it. If it's good for you, well, then you'll do it. But if it's hard or if it's going to stretch you or if it's going to make you uncomfortable, well, I'm not interested in that. And here's the sad part. He said, I know they won't last around here very long. But what really hurts my feelings is that I know they're going to go to a church that's going to feed into what they're saying. 
That's what really hurts me. Let's just spend all our money and our time enjoying ourselves. And let's let the people we'll never know or care about go to hell. It's a shocking, shocking thing. You see, there's no urgency to enter into a new kind of life whereby we take on God's agenda for the world. Why would you do that? I mean, look, if, if, I've, already, if I've already got everything I'm going to get and that's just the way it is and it's all good and everything's fine, well, okay. I mean, when I really stop and think about it, I'm not really different. We're not really different in the sense that I really do want to do, I don't want to just do extra things. I don't want to work hard for the sake of working hard. Let me put it to you that way. Let me confess something to you, okay? This may shock you, but I I want you to, this is a little, let's wipe away an illusion, and I'm just going to let you in. I want you to to know Pastor Tony a little bit, okay? So, So here we go. You ready for this? I don't mow my grass until it needs it. Does that surprise you? Like, I don't just get up and think, well, need to mow my grass. I don't do it. You know what? I hate mowing grass. And so if it doesn't, if my grass, every time it rains, I go, oh, man. I mean, what I'm saying is, is that if you listen, just listen to me talk about the gospel, you might think I'm some kind of crazy person that just like, you know, cleans a room when it's already clean or mows grass that don't need mowing. That ain't me. I love to sit down and read a book and chill out. I really do. But I'm also the kind of person that if something needs to be done, I'm going to do it. So now if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm looking at my relationship with God and I'm thinking, hey, I'm not out looking for things to do, but hey, He's told us what He wants us to do. He didn't ask us what we thought about it. He told us. Right? Yeah, that's right. So therefore, the conversion-centered gospel, it's a passive gospel. It is passive. When you feed on a conversion-centered gospel, you know what happens? You don't impact anybody else's life. You really don't. People would have to come up and actually ask you, hey, excuse me, uh, don't you go to church? I heard, you know, the guy in the office across the hall told me you go to church. Yeah, so, you know, can you tell me about that? Like, me and my wife are having problems, or, you know, can you, what, can you tell me about that? Well, you know, Jesus came and, and died for your sin, and all you have to do is receive him, and you'd be saved and go to heaven. Or, you know, hey, I, you know, don't you go to church? I, I just got diagnosed with cancer. Well, you know, I never met anybody that just got diagnosed with cancer that wasn't interested in having a conversation about heaven. I mean, I'm just going to, I never met them. I've never met them. You let somebody get diagnosed with cancer, they want to talk about heaven. Suddenly they're interested. But if it's not, if the end isn't imminent, if there's not some, well, you know. It's like, Lord, uh, you know, God, I believe in you, but could you come back later? You know what I mean? Things are going good right now. He's knocking at the door. Uh, yeah, I mean, I hear you, but, you know, come back another time. You know, like when I get older. When things aren't going so good. I'll come find you. Leave your address so I know where to find you. Mm-hmm. So here's the questions. These two contrasting questions. In a conversion center gospel, we'd ask the question, well, if you die tonight, would you go to heaven? Now, admittedly so. There was a season in my life where this is what I did. And I went and knocked on people's doors, and they came to the door, and I said, hey, if you die tonight... Are you going to go to heaven? Yeah. 
not really the most uh, successful way to uh, accomplish a great commission, but thank God that he judges by the thoughts and intentions because certainly I was fully intending to do the right thing. But there's more of a conversation that needs to be had. There's nothing wrong with asking that question. But if that's all you ask, you see, that question, it focuses on the crisis event to enact salvation. So here's the illustration that I use. So next week, we're going to have VBS here. And there's going to be, you know, that East Sanctuary over there is going to be packed with kids. I'm talking about like sardines are going to be packed in there. And it's amazing. And we have a great time. Now, at some point during that week, if me or Pastor Rod got up in front of all those kids and we said, now kids, let me tell you about hell. It's super hot and it's super dark and it's super scary and it's super bad. And if you go there, you stay there forever. Now, who in here wants to not go there and wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. What do you think is going to happen? See, they're all raising their hand. Every kid in here is like, oh, hey, I do. And then I go, now, repeat after me, and we pray this prayer. And then the week after VBS, I have 65 kids to baptize. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. And you shouldn't want it to happen, nor should you allow it to happen. Because when you enact salvation on this, when you're, I mean, I can, I can manipulate people into doing a lot of things. But that's not the goal. So, I'm not saying that the reality of hell is not a powerful thing. I preach on it every chance I get. I'm just simply saying that just think this through. Now, here's a better question. What if we ask this question? Well, if you knew you were going to live forever, what kind of person would you like to become? See, we can still have a conversation about forgiveness in heaven, but if you're going to live forever, what kind of person would you like to become? See, get somebody to think for a minute about, well, now how are you exactly going to do that? See, when you're having a conversation with somebody, it goes something like this. You start talking to them and you say, now, if you live forever... You know, what kind of, I just ask them, you know, like when you were, if I'm talking to somebody that's my age, I say, now, when you were a, a, a child and you thought about your life when you grew up, is where you are today some of the things you thought about? You know, is, are, you the, are you the kind of father, the kind of husband, the kind of person that you had hoped to be? And based on the nature of the conversation we're having, I already know in advance that their answer is going to be no. And so then I say, well, now, so what's your plan? What, what's your plan? Huh? No, they don't have a plan. How's that going to work out? You know, you're not just going to, it's not just going to happen. So yeah, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. He, that's true. But what is the plan? You see, the second question focuses on the process of growing into Christ's likeness. You see, that's why when, you, when you're sharing your testimony with somebody, it's so powerful. Because your testimony is, is one, of the, one of the phenomenal ways that you're able to give a very well-rounded presentation of the gospel because somebody is listening to your story and they're listening to this, the, not just the conversion, but the progression. As you talk about who you were and then conversion and who you've become, and how God is continually moving, and how today is radically different and changed because of salvation in Jesus Christ. One question is just concerned with getting to heaven, while the other is concerned with who I am right now and who I'm going to become in the future. Now, if you're feeling a little anxious which my guess is some of you are, then let me help you. If you get the disciple-making part right, 
the heaven part, it, it's going to work itself out. It, it's going to be okay. But not the other way around. You see, if you, if someone, if someone understands Jesus' call to follow them, you don't have to worry about, it's okay, the heaven part is going to work itself out, isn't it? Right? I mean, isn't that obvious? But if you have a conversion-only conversation and leave the discipleship part out, here's what, here's what the statistics prove. The discipleship part won't work itself out. Nine out of ten times, that's not going to happen. So, intentionality and spiritual formation. And it's, uh, again, it's just a reminder of our tendency to drift because I feel like uh, I'm a very, uh, what I call, gospel-centered person. And it's, it's hard for me even to have conversations about uh, human responsibility because I'm so gospel-centered a lot of times. But i got to be reminded of these things. So let's talk about intentionality. Our growth into Christ-likeness is not going to happen through osmosis. Now, based on the fact that we're having this conversation on a Sunday night on Father's Day, you know, there's a pretty good chance that you already know this. Because all the people that are in the midst of discovering this or that are under the weight of this, well, they're not here. And they're not really thinking about you see, for so many people, it's like, well, you know, if I can make it to church, you know, three out of four Sunday mornings, give a few bucks in the offering plate, hey, everything's going to be good. I don't understand that. I don't, my mind has never really been in that place before, but I just know that it's a very prevalent way of thinking. So there's two beautiful truths that are existing in perfect harmony. Here's the first one. Being born again is truly the work of God alone. In the same way that the first time you got born, which believe me, you will, you will understand this in such detail after the next, by the time we get through John chapter 3, it'll be unreal. So, but in the same way that the first time you were born, you had nothing to do with that. You didn't, you know, you didn't think to yourself, you know, today would be a good day to be born. You know, you didn't, you weren't knocking on the, the door going, hello, today's the day, you know. No, you were just born. You were just there. You were growing along, and then in the fullness of time, when God deemed it right, bingo, something happened, somebody rushed your mom to the hospital, and there you were. Well, you had the same amount to do with when you got born again. You didn't have nothing to do with that either. God did it. He did it by himself. He didn't need your help. You didn't have to straighten yourself out or clean yourself up or work yourself to some point or anything. Nobody comes to the Father unless God draws him. So you didn't have anything to do with it. But at the same time, it's God alone. Our growth in kingdom life depends significantly on our own active participation with Christ through his grace. And these two things, although they seem opposing, almost like the sovereignty of God and free will, they're not. They're perfectly harmonious. And so God does all the saving on His own. You didn't have anything to do with it. But at the same time, this kingdom life, Theologically speaking, your sanctification it has a lot to do with how you actively participate with His grace. So here's the principle. The principle is that God's not opposed to effort, but He is very opposed to earning. You see, the motive behind 
why you do what you do is important to God. So if you, are, if you think you're propelling yourself in sanctification by reading the Bible and memorizing Scripture and teaching a Sunday school class and doing all these things because you want to be uh, known as a spiritual person or you want people to think well of you or whatever the case may be, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. But if you are giving effort for the sole intention of trying to honor and glorify your Lord and Savior and do what He called you to do, then He's going to extraordinarily bless that effort. So in other words, we must engage in well-intentioned or well-directed effort if we're going to grow. Now, when I talk about this in my starting point class, at some point we stop and we have this conversation. And I draw this chart on the, on the whiteboard and I go pretending this is a chart that charted your sanctification. I'm talking about our role in sanctification. And I say, now, so I don't know everybody else's story, but I know my story. And so if I... If I came to Christ 25 years ago in this very church with so many people still in the church that still remember that day. They still remember when I first visited. They still remember all that, right? Some of them had a 10, 20, 30, even a 40-year head start on me in relationship with Christ. And here we are. Now, is that because I'm super intelligent? Not at all. Is that because I worked harder than everybody else? Probably not either. But there's some divine connection between the fact that God supernaturally calls some of us to do things. But does He force us? Does He? So you see, what God knew, and no one else knew, was first of all that He had a, a plan that I'd be a pastor. But no one knew that plan except for Him. And He didn't reveal that plan until He was ready. And when He revealed that plan in my life, just like when He revealed that plan in Rod's life, we may have engaged with it in different ways, you know. We might have responded to it in different ways. But, but here's the, the, the thing. We could have rebelled against that plan. Just like you can rebel against the plan God has for you. Just like so many people do. Now, if you think when I say that, well, are you saying God fails? Oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Listen, let's be crystal clear. God didn't need me to be a pastor. He invited me to be one. And I had a choice to embrace that or to reject that. I had a choice to engage intentionally with that or to run away from that. And either way, don't ever. The, his church never misses a beat, does it? No. Mm -mm. So one thing that happens when you're a pastor is that you have conversations with people all the time, and they say to you, "You know, God called me to be a pastor, but I ran away from it." I can't tell you, probably five times in the last year I've had a conversation with somebody, you know, in their late 60s, early 70s, and they said, when I was a young man, I know God called me to be a pastor, but I ran. And it's the biggest regret of their life. So God has a plan for your life. Oh, yes, He does. But He's not going to force you. You can have as much of Him as you want.
Well, I mean, that just really gets to me the more I think about it. All right, so here's some clarification. When we talk about effort, I'm not saying that you grit your teeth and just act more Christian. Oh, Lord, please know that's not what I'm saying. We're not talking about behavior modification. We're talking about spiritual transformation. Or to use your own will and determination to form yourself into behaving in a manner that's acceptable to God. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not at all what effort, spiritual effort is. To do those things is is completely man-centered and it's the way that will lead you directly to failure, guilt, and discouragement. It's just legalism and it's going to be a disaster. No. I mean intentionally engaging with what God desires to do in our lives. So what we have to understand about intentionality is that the work of transformation is God's work in us, but we're not passive to the process. Philippians chapter 2, I tried to use very familiar scriptures so it would be helpful to you. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but so much more so in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Now, do you know that, that Greek verb, work out, to work out your own salvation? It means to continually work to bring something to fruition, to bring it to fulfillment, to completion. It's not just, uh, that verse is not saying, just figure out whether or not you're going to heaven or not. No. It's the process of sanctification. It's the, it's the transformation that God desires to do in you and me. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, To this end I also labor, striving according to His workings, which work in me mightily. See that? See, Paul, now I want to ask you a question. According to Colossians 1.29, who's striving? Is God striving? No, Paul's striving. Who's working mightily? Paul? No, God. These two things are going at the same time. It's not one or the other. So both of these verses affirm the action of humanity and the action of God working simultaneously. That these two things are happening. They're not canceling each other out. Of course, I can't do anything apart from Christ. I can do nothing. But with Him, I can have as much of Him as I want. Right? See, I I can't have God on my own terms, but if I have God, I can have all of Him I want. Now just chew on that a minute. So while it's true that apart from Christ we can do nothing, it's also true that if we do nothing, it will be apart from Christ. So the people who are sitting at home on the couch eating spiritual Twinkies, as I always say, doing nothing... They're doing that apart from Christ. So becoming Christ-like never occurs without intense and well-informed action on our part. Now there is some pushback to Whenever you start talking about the, uh, a biblical understanding of spiritual formation, there's going to be pushback. There always is. But it's okay. I mean, everything the Bible says creates pushback. So, but one of the reasons that people will oftentimes reject 
intentionality and effort is based on this misunderstanding or misappropriation. Here's how I worded it. One of the reasons some have rejected or been skeptical about our efforts in the transformation process is they appear to minimize or eliminate the role of grace. It's just simply the fact that they don't know what grace is and understand the way grace works in our lives. An understanding of grace will set you free from this and you'll understand it very readily what God's saying. You see, this, this understanding, it misunderstands grace. Remember three weeks ago when we first had this conversation, I gave you a definition of grace and I said, this is going to be important because moving forward, you're going to need to hang on to this definition because it's going to help you to put things rightly as we're sequentially growing in our understanding. And we said, we said uh, there, grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we can't accomplish in our own. In other words... So remember, God's called us into the kingdom. He's called us into His activity. Remember that conversation? And we talked about how grace is this activity of God that's accomplishing what we can't accomplish on our own. Now, that is a great understanding of grace. And what it does, it helps you to understand that therefore, all of our efforts are fueled by God's grace. That that what I want you to understand is that every time that I'm studying the Scripture, and God reveals something to me, it's the grace of God. I don't, I don't ever, I'm not ever in my study, you know, studying the Scripture and, then, and saying to myself, wow, I am a genius. Look at what I just figured out. I mean, and if you say that, don't say it around me because I'm afraid of lightning. No. Man, when God shows me something, I'm like, Thank you, Jesus. It's the grace of God. So you see, it's the grace of God that it grace that saves us becomes the grace that teaches us. The same grace that brought me into relationship with God teaches me. But our... Have you ever lived your life as if because you're saved if you don't do anything God's just going to grow you? You're lying. You know you have. We all have. And everyone does. And, And a lot of people today live their lives that way. They live as if, well, I'm saved, and so the rest of it is just going to work itself out. It is. I've never met, I've never met a person who walked in the Spirit, who didn't intentionally interact with God. Never. I never met anybody. Well, I'm going to heaven, so they're just walking in the Spirit. I've never seen it. All our efforts are fueled by grace. Thus, grace, in, a very, real, in very real terms, becomes our daily fuel. For holy living, transformed lives, yet not without our effort. Nobody is transformed by wishing it could happen. It's a choice. Now there's a bigger conversation that could be had, but we clearly don't have time for that. But you could, you could ask yourself this question. You could say, hmm, could a person be transformed and not choose 
to continually be transformed? That's a question for maybe another week. Effort versus earning. Let's just make sure we're clear before we go home tonight because you've got to be clear here. God's grace is a gift. It's not for sale and it's not given to the hardest worker. You can't puff yourself up or beat yourself on the chest and tell everybody about how much Bible you know or how much time you spend in prayer, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't doesn't work like that. To grow in transformation, every, every baby step that you've ever taken in transformation was a sheer act of grace on the part of a loving Father who cares for you. Everything. Everything God's ever shown me, everything He's ever taught me, everything I've ever understood, it's all been by His grace. But it didn't just happen. It didn't just rain out of the sky. Grace endows one with the power and resources to give a full effort. So the best way to bring this to a close is just to look together at Ephesians chapter 2 because it's one of my favorite passages in Scripture and mainly because I've just spent an hour talking about something that the Scripture can just resolve in two verses. Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Well, we all know that one. For we are His poema, His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For a purpose, God's got a plan. What's the plan? Good works. Which God, in His grace, has prepared beforehand for you. Now look closely. That he's going to force you to walk in? That you are robotically going to walk in? This God who freely, by his grace, saved you, has a plan. And he's laid them out before you. And His plan is for you to do good works. And they're all laid out. That you should walk in them. I just want to ask you this tonight. Are you walking... Are you walking in those steps that God laid out before you? Do you want to? Are you? I hope you are. I certainly do. And as you live and breathe and exist in His grace, you look around you and take note of the Remarkable things that God does in people's lives around us. And uh, so I had this conversation Wednesday night. There was a couple young men sitting in there, oblivious. Just like I used to do. Brand new, out of the box. Wednesday night, sitting in church. Tonight, they're either in the D group 
or they're serving the kids. And they know that they know the least amount of Bible knowledge of everybody in the room. They know that. And they're a little, they'd be, soup, they'd be probably the most nervous people in the room if I suddenly said, okay, I'm going to call on one of you to pray to dismiss us. And I remember that feeling. And I wonder to myself, I wonder if one of them is going to pastor this church. They might. They want to walk in good works. Nobody had to tell them. Nobody had to prod them. They just walk. I hope you're walking. He's got a plan for you. But he's not going to make you live it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for tonight.